Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to another magical episode of the Midnight Mass Podcast. I'm your hostess, Peaches Christ. And what's that I see? Someone flying on a broom? Oh, well, it's my co-host, the one, the only, it's Michael Verratti. Well, hello, Peaches, and I took the liberty of ironing your homework today. (laughs) (laughs) Did you prepare me a wholesome breakfast? I sure did. I have to tell you that the line I just quoted from this week's movie is a delivery that has lived in my head for almost 30 years, and I can't wait to talk more about all the unique choices in this week's film. Michael, you think you're hot stuff because you went to a dance. Dream on. No one wants to date you because you're a dog. A dog. A dog. How dare you, Peaches? This is going to be my (laughs) finest hour, and I'm going to be the most popular girl. That's right. We're talking about 1989's Teen Witch, directed by Dorian Walker, starring Robin Lively, Zelda Rubenstein, Mandy Ingber, Joshua John Miller, featuring an appearance by Dick Sargent, and lots and lots of musical numbers. Many of you are going to be asking, how are we going to top that intro? And so probably that might be the best intro we've ever done because, you know, we were acting, acting, giving lines. That particular series of quotes comes to us from our friend, friend of the podcast, Joshua John Miller, who is the young star in this film who plays the younger brother of Teen Witch. Of course, we know Joshua from other cult films such as Near Dark and uh River's Edge, and we we talk about Joshua on the podcast today. That's actually how Teen Witch came to my life in the Midnight Mass screening form. Of course, we also talk about the fact that Martini introduced me to this movie. My <laughs> faithful, flawed, tragic sidekick, Martini, was obsessed with Teen Witch. Oh, my God, she was obsessed with it. She brought it to me, and then it was Darren Stein who said, hey, you know, my friend Joshua Miller is in that film. Joshua and I had met through Darren, you know, at that point. And then we did it at Midnight Mass and and Joshua came to the screening and that was the first time we did it. And then I've done it many, many times since we've we've had screenings with Robin Lively herself, Teen Witch. We've had screenings with Mandy Ingber, Polly. We've had uh, screenings without anybody. But how did you first discover Teen Witch and what has it meant to you, Michael? Well, I first saw Teen Witch when it played ad nauseum on cable because this is one of those movies that I think for a whole generation of folks, the uh, kind of repeated airings in home video market is what brought it into people's homes. It was a movie, as with a lot of movies in the cult film pantheon and in the Midnight Mass pantheon, that did not necessarily hit right away when it came out at the theater. And so uh, I did not see this theatrically, and I was probably a little too young. Well, that's not true, not in 1989. But I did see it because it played repeatedly on television. And it was one of those movies that I came in the middle of it and the first time I saw it. Like, I turned it on, and it was sort of in the middle. And I was just kind of struck by what's this because there was something strange and weird about the first few minutes that I saw that I watched it through to the end and then the next time it was on I caught it from the beginning and then just from there it was this thing where anytime Teen Witch was on if I could catch it I would watch it and I loved it and I know so many folks who have told me the same thing I saw it on TV I used to rent it a lot at the video store and this is one of those movies that is a true example of cult film word of mouth because 
That's how people found it and found each other. If you saw this movie for the first time, joining it halfway through, that means you still got to uh, experience the deliciousness of I Like Boys, which happens relatively early in the film on your second viewing. And it's early on. I mean, pretty early on. Yeah. Where you, you really know you're in for something special. That dance number in the locker room, in the, the lyrics to the song, I Like Boys. It's just Amazing. Well, I can tell you with pretty much firm certainty that the very first scene that I really remember seeing or that stuck with me on my first watching is Louise being at the Ferris wheel where like it rains and she controls the wind and whatever. Yeah, and right. I just remember. Yeah, thinking, right. No, that's the one I remember. It's the abandoned house scene where she gets fucked. But that happens later. Honey, I'm just telling you, I know what it is that you remember most. Oh, no, I would have led with that. <laughs> Because, as I say in one of our later interviews, boy, do I love some late night Cinemax. I mean, look, I am definitely a product of the Shannon Tweed generation. If there was horniness to be discussed, I would have led with the saxophone conversation. But no, I remember her, and it's not a Ferris wheel. I misspoke. It is a carousel. You can tell that I'm not really good at amusement parks. But yeah, she's sitting on the carousel, and that's, you know, she's trying her powers. And I remember that scene on that initial watching kind of pulling me in, because of course I loved magic, and she's a teen, and like, I was just a little bit younger than her. And I'm like, I want to be a magical kid. And so that was what brought me in. And then you're right. The second time I saw it, and then it's like the cheerleaders in the locker room singing a song. And it's like, oh, this movie's so much more than even I realized. And the hunk. Don't forget the hunk. Which, of course, in the stage show. Did you ever see one of our Teen Witch screenings? I don't think so. Okay, so we used to do this sort of elaborate opening montage, you know, with drag queens all reenacting um, a tableau of different scenes from the movie. So, of course, I think it started with Most Popular Girl. Oh, no, it was um, Never Gonna Be the, the Same, same again. again. Never <laughs> Gonna Be. <laughs> so it would start with that and like peaches would be like all fierce and like, you know, my hair was blowing in a fan and wearing the sexy dress. And then it would go into I Like Boys. Someone who's seen this show more than once is going to correct me and say, no, girl, that's not how it went. Because I know that we did the same number over and over again because we had the same 14 minute track that I still have in my iTunes that someone mixed <laughs> for me 20 years ago that we we used over and over again. And my favorite part was when the football player would come out and he would be throwing the football around. And then I would come out as Teen Witch, as Peaches, horny as can be. And we would turn on a live feed and the live feed would be someone with a video camera that's patched into the projector and it would be projecting onto the screen what was happening happening on stage, which would inevitably end with me getting plowed. And, you know, that my face in the camera, you know, with the football player taking me doggy style from behind and me writhing and, you know, but giant, like hideous images of my sex face, my O face. And, you know, the audience, I think, should have liked that the most. But what they always liked the most was we had Hoku Mama play Polly once. We definitely had Lady Bear play Polly multiple times. And the top that recreation of the pre-show was always the part that the audience would go apeshit for. Well, and of course it makes sense because the top that moment in the film is one of those moments that has in some ways transcended the film itself. We see it now as a TikTok clip. It's made its way around YouTube. We've seen recreations of it via drag circles and cabaret circles. We know that top that is really kind of impossible to top because it is one of those 
pure cult cinema moments. But for all the recreations and for all the loving homages, you still can't beat the original. And luckily, Peaches, we have the person who performed it here with us today. That's right. She is a friend. She's one of the people who I've had the extreme pleasure of getting to do a live show with on stage at the Castro Theater, tributing her, her role in this film. She is someone who was so lovely that she and I have stayed in touch. We have uh, stayed friends. And actually, we, we've we stayed friends through our mutual friendship with Ricky Lake. She is a yoga instructor to the stars. We're going to talk to her right now. It's Mandy Ingber. <laughs> Not respected, who would ever really want to go and top that? Such a waste of pretty face, but hanging in your nose face. I wish that you would take a look and really stop that. Top that. Well, stop that. I don't really give up about trying to top that. Top that. Stop that. I wish you finally take a real look and really stop that. Welcome back, everybody. Oh, my goodness. It is my extreme pleasure to introduce our next guest, who is an accomplished yoga instructor. Uh, she's the New York Times bestselling author of Yoga Yogalosophy, 28 Days to the Ultimate Mind-Body Makeover, and Yoga Yogalosophy for Inner Strength. In addition to this, she and I share a mutual friend, actually one of her closest friends in the world is someone I adore, Ricky Lake, which is not why she's here today. These are other reasons you you know, her being a yoga instructor to the stars is a second reason to maybe have her back when we do a yoga episode. But the reason she's here today, of course, is because she is one of the stars of the seminal cult film, Teen Witch. She's with us today to talk all about how you top that. Without further ado, it's the one and only Mandy Ingber. Hi. Hi. Wow, thank you for all that. Thanks for having me here. It's great to be with you guys today. Well, we're so excited to have you here. And as per the time of the release of this episode, we're getting to celebrate the October Halloween month with you. So what better movie to be talking about, I think. With that, why don't we take it back with a really simple, easy, small question is how how did this movie come about in your life? Wow, what a great question. <laughs> um, I started acting when I was 14. My first job was this Broadway show. I was in the original company of Brighton Beach Memoirs, and I was a working wow. actress. I came back to L.A., was doing, you know, multiple sitcoms and series that would go for like six or 12 episodes. And I was sort of like juggling being on this show called My Sister Sam and Cheers, which was, you know, a very popular 80s show. And, you know, I was just a working actor and got this script, Teen Witch. As I'm saying this, I'm remembering like reading the script out by the pool and just being like, whatever. And <laughs> in audition and uh, got the part. It's funny because I actually, there's one other movie I, that I almost got at the same time, which was the movie called Say Anything, which mm. was um, a very popular movie at that time. So this was the one I got instead. So I was a little bit like, uh, but, um, but yeah. And, and so it was just an audition. It was just like a regular audition and I uh, got the job. While well, say anything, I'm sure when, when these two movies came out, seemed like the one to pine for. However, I, as Peaches Christ, am not doing a say anything screening yes. anytime soon. 
Mandy and I first met when we did a big Teen Witch celebration at the Castro Theater, you know, big sold out show. We got to perform for her. And of course, the top that moment uh, in in our pre-show is always the moment the entire audience is waiting for and excited about. It keeps coming back no matter what. You know, uh, I always say it's like in Cape Fear, you know, Robert De Niro's character. (laughs) Like, like it's like now it's under the truck, you know. But it's like the one thing, no matter what I do, no matter, you know, all the accolades, no matter, you know, the New York Times bestseller and the this and that, Teen Witch is always the thing that like sticks. And you're so you're so right about the saying anything moment. But when I went to do the Q&A for your show mm-hmm. in uh, at the Castro, I was doing it to get away from the life that I had created. I was like, yeah, I'll go see what this is all about. But that was the first time that I really saw what Teen Witch had become like in real life. Mm. And also it was the first time I ever watched the movie with a large audience who loved the movie. And it gave me a whole new appreciation for the movie, for what it was. And you actually made me love the movie myself. Oh, that's amazing. Oh my God. That is maybe one of the best parts of my weird job. Because the reality of it is multiple films that we've screened and many, many cult films are misunderstood when they come out by the general public, right? Like they don't get it, you know, but then there's this group who see the value that other people don't in something like Showgirls or Teen Witch or Mommy Dearest or Valley of the Dolls. And the list goes on and on. Many of these films now we consider to be, you know, classic movies, you know, Pink Flamingos plays on Turner classic movies, right? So these are movies that are understood by a a smaller group of people, the cult, if you will. And I then get to sometimes invite people like yourself, who had an experience when the movie came out that wasn't great, you know, because the movie didn't do well at the box office or wasn't critically well received. But then I get to show them decades later, oh, look at this. There's a a group of people who made this film their religion. (laughs) Yes, totally. The idea of like the audience, you know, how important an audience is because Mm. the audience is a part, you know, when you're a performer, the audience is a part of the performance. And when you do a film, you don't really get to have that experience. So that circuit is not closed. You know, like for instance, when I did sitcoms or when I did theater, you get to have that immediate feedback. But with a movie, it's like, you don't really know. And when I saw it with your audience or with Teen Witch's audience, I was like, oh my gosh. And also there are a lot of profound things about that movie that I didn't understand personally until I watched it with people that really loved it. Because I watched it in a different way. And I was like, oh, wow, this is deep. Maybe this is deep, you know? I mean, it kind of took me into a new dimension with Teen Witch. Yeah, you know what's interesting is I'm attaching to a whole bunch of threads here that I think are really interesting and really important within the context of the discussion of Teen Witch, but also sort of the larger thing that we talk about here on Midnight Mass. Because one of the things we really like to do on the show is highlight the cult and the people who find and obsess and cultivate and keep these movies going. And uh, I'm reminded, Peaches, when we had our conversation with Adrian King, who was in the original Friday the 13th, her experience was very similar. She didn't realize that people loved this, despite the fact that we culturally knew those movies were big, because she wasn't paying attention to it, because it's different when you're inside of it, right? You're not thinking about the job you did. And you were talking about how when you got the script, it was sort of like your initial reaction was whatever, and you viewed it as a job, but then you got to discover that people through home video and airings on television and and screenings like Peaches have been celebrating and worshiping this movie and you get to experience it in a new way. But 
With all that said, even if it was just a job initially, thinking about the construction of Teen Witch, I have to ask, because like, even with comparison to say anything or other movies at the time, this is not a usually constructed movie. So once you get the gig and you realize, okay, there are kind of pseudo musical numbers and I have to rap and this is going on. What was your take on the material once you hit, hit the ground running? Well, the, the, here's the thing. A lot of it was, there was no rap in the original script, okay? So that was an added thing later. That was after we filmed and finished production. That was like a reshoot, but it was like an extra scene that I, there were a couple of extra scenes that they added. So when I got the job, I wasn't expecting to do a rap. I didn't even really know that the Polly character, my character, had like any feelings toward the rappers, you know, at all. So when I was filming it, I really wasn't playing that anyway. Um, mm. But it was something they add, they pieced together later. And that's, I kind of feel like that's what Teen Witch was. Frankly, I didn't totally trust the director, you know, like in, in terms of that process. I think I was a little lost finding it, you know? So yeah, I think it was more like something that they pieced together over time, adding musical numbers, adding some story at the end. That's how it went, which is, I think, why it was, maybe I, I didn't look back on it as this super great movie or anything like that. I was just, it was a job that I had a, actually a really good time on because I we got along really well, the whole cast. I got along with like every person in the cast. Which is rare, as you, as yeah. you, you know, yes. Yeah, and the conditions were so, like, I remember walking into a room when we shot at the high school. I guess it was Hollywood High, I can't remember. But I walked into my room and it was like, there was trash everywhere on the floor. So we all ended up in this, like, in a room together, you know, massaging each other and like hanging and talking. And so we all got to spend a lot of time together because the conditions were just sort of not great. So I had a good time on the movie. You're speaking to uh, one of those things that is what makes Teen Witch so special. And it's not that it has a traditionally classic high quality of filmic storytelling to it. It's right. that it is random. It mm -hmm. is bizarre. It does give you a bunch of what the fuck kind of question mark moments, right? right. And, I, and I say that with love, but it's because it's so random and disjointed and bizarre and actually getting that insight, what you're telling us actually makes sense. Like not necessarily kind of seeing what the director's vision was and they're not being music numbers in the movie because the musical numbers you know when when it busts out at the beginning with i like boys i, I think like it's boys one of, is yeah. my favorite actually it's, it's, <laughs> my favorite. it's so good yeah that was in there though that was so it was in there mm -hmm, that was in uh, there there were some musical numbers but like the rap wasn't in there i didn't know i was doing a musical number you know right I didn't know that. And so, and by the way, like I was never the kind of actor that would put, oh yeah, horseback riding, you know, for my skills. I was super, <laughs> I'm like, you know, promise low, high return. And right. so the fact that I was suddenly having to do this rap for me was like, oh, wow. Okay. How am I going to do this? You know, that was my feeling about the rap, but because I was a serious actress, you know, like, what can you do? You have to commit. You right, know? right. But I was like in internally, you know, just I had to overcome my judgment, I guess, is what is what I'm saying. I mean, that's just my personal journey. But then seeing it with the audience, I was representing a certain kind of person 
that was like a moment of empowerment, you know, and right. that's what I really got when I saw it with the audience at the uh, at the Castro. People really loved that. They were screaming. I mean, it was it's like a rock concert moment. Yeah. Well, yeah. And as Peaches said, whenever you see it with a live audience, that's the scene where everyone goes crazy. And I think for the audience members who don't know and are learning for the first time here that this was a scene that was added later, it's probably going to blow their minds because for so many people, it's a very pivotal key moment to the movie and such a celebrated moment. I shared with you before we went on the air just a few nights ago, I was at the movie theater and someone was wearing a Top That t-shirt, not just a Teen Witch t-shirt, a Top That t-shirt featuring an animated version of you. And so I think that it's really interesting, these moments that we're not really sure of in the making or even are sort of added later that become the DNA of what draws people to the film. And that's got to be fulfilling in some way, especially when it began with uncertainty. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think now, especially, you know, looking back, you know, so many years later, I think that you have that objectivity and, you know, you're not so attached to the things that you're, you know, that you did. I think that it gives me that. And yeah, I mean, there's, there is something about it that's like, very cool. Just as cool as I think it was that I'm whatever, that I was in the original company of Brighton Beach Memoirs and that I, you know, was in cheer. Like, I think those things are cool. I also think it's cool that I'm in this most iconic musical number of this cult classic. Yeah. Not everybody gets to have that in their boon bag, you know, in their, in their bag of tricks. And, and I love that. I do love it. And yeah, there are pins. There are so many products out there. Like there are so many products of top that who knows? I don't know who makes that money. I don't know what all that is. <laughs> but I see a lot of my image on different, you know, items. You know who makes the money? I'll tell you. It's this interesting <laughs> thing with the internet now where fans make products you know, for other fans. Right. So the good news is no one's getting totally rich off right. this. It's sort of sprinkled around. I've made the mistake of occasionally wearing a fan-made John Waters t-shirt or worse, an Elvira t-shirt in front of them because I forget and they're my friends. Then it's sort of like, where did you get that? Right. Um, you know, <laughs> I don't care. You, you know, know, it's funny. Is that it's kind of, I've kind of been like, well, I should, like, I should, can I have my niece? You should. Fourteen, you know, make one and then yes. we can make money off of it. You, should, you know, yeah. I have thought of it. A thousand percent you should. You know, Elizabeth Berkeley's now selling showgirls t-shirts off her Instagram. So yeah. I think Mandy Ingber selling some top that things. We I can the hook you up with now. some artists. I let's mean, we can uh, get this going. Yeah. Let's make a business. Yeah. So um did Elizabeth Berkeley ever did you guys connect ever? No, I love her. I love the movie. I've spoken in documentaries about her a lot. I've sent her multiple invitations. I yeah. think she definitely has considered them. It's never been a no, but I also understand why it's not yet been yeah. immediately a yes. Yeah. So my hope is that someday I get to sort of celebrate her the way I think she deserves to be celebrated. And um, I told her about you, actually. I, oh, I, amazing. So she and I went to the same acting school. She was in a different group than I was, but I literally just saw her like two weeks ago at a celebration for our acting teacher. I love her. She also, by the way, was one of the people who, when I, when I wrote my book, when I wrote the first yogalosophy book, she was like, okay, well, like, let's, how do we make this a New York times bestseller? Like she, wow. you know, she was one of the people that was like very encouraging. So I adore her. I, I hope 
that she gets to go to one of your shows because I, I, it really changed my view of Teen Witch. And I'm sure it would, I'm sure she would love to be celebrated like that if she knew what it was, you know, like. You know, that movie experience for her was obviously trauma inducing, you yeah. know, to some degree. And I think what we would do is be able to at least show her that there is an earnest love for this thing. And it's a pure love and it's a love for her, you know, right. and there was a lot of cruelness, I think we all know, with that film release. And, you know, um, so I totally get it. And I appreciate you, you know, um, encouraging her. Because let me tell you, if, if if we do a show with Elizabeth Berkley at the Castro Theater, that will be the holy grail. And it will blow the roof off the place. And she will, <laughs> she will feel the love. Like, I have no yeah. doubt that she will enjoy it. There's another interesting connection with Teen Witch that I have. Josh Miller is a mutual friend of both Michael and I's. And so yeah. it was actually Josh who, oh my God, it was like close to 20 years ago that Josh first came to the Midnight Mass show back when it was at the Bridge Theater. And, you know, I grew up sort of knowing Josh from films like Teen Witch, but also Near Dark and... Um, the River's Edge. The River's yeah, Edge. The River's Edge you know. is so good. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, I think both you and Josh represent something in these films. I mean, Robin is gorgeous and more of what we would come to expect in sort of this teen witch, you know. But Robin also, in many ways, is is a bit awkward in the film as well. She's great. She's great she's, in the film. Yeah. Talk about having a through line. Yeah, she's... Yeah. She's amazing. And, you know, as you know, we did the show with Robin as well. And, you know, but with Josh, I feel like, you know, one of the things that's so special for a movie like this is to... To see a kid who, as a young queer kid, you go, oh, there's something about that kid I identify with. Mm -hmm. And um, to see a movie like Teen Witch, where the three of you, I think, represent the kind of kids that didn't often get to be in these movies, in leading roles, doing rap songs or, you know, casting magic. It is one of the things that makes cult movies special is that you're speaking to the other. You're yeah. speaking to people who don't see themselves necessarily represented in a say anything, you know? And so often these films are more special to people because they see a reflection of themselves that they didn't get to see. That's a long-winded way of saying, like, this is a truly cult film. And I think what you were feeling was that deeper level of connection people have to the Absolutely. movie. Yeah, because we weren't laughing at the movie. They were really, I mean, they were in. And yeah. um, funnily enough, Joshua John Miller, I just want to say, you know, we had never even met each other. Uh -huh. There was like a Blu-ray interview. Um, actually, he was supposed to be at the Castro with me and Robin that time. And he That's right. But I had never met him at that point. I only met him recently, like in the last eight years, like maybe eight years ago, I met him for the first time. Wow. Yeah. I guess it makes sense because you don't really have scenes together in the film. Yeah, no scenes. Well, so. One of the things that was mentioned that uh, I have been thinking about for all the years I've been watching this movie, and I finally want to talk about it with you because Peach has mentioned a through line. And we know when Teen Witch came out, there were a lot of t teen movie tropes that happened. And one of those tropes is that our lead kind of has a break with their friends and they reconcile. But something that never happens in this movie that is always sort of stuck in my craw is that Louise and Polly never really come back together at the end. And I have this kind of justice for Polly feeling in my heart. So I just wanted to get your take on that because they kind of like have a friend breakup and they we never really see them together again at the end of the movie which may be realistic but I always kind of wonder about that sequence. It's kind of interesting that they never thought that the producers or whatever never thought to add that in later like to resolve that relationship um, so I don't know why that was left undone 
I do think what you just said is true, which is sometimes we have friend breakups and they actually, we actually don't get back together, you know, and that is sort of realistic, but I really don't know what happens there. And I don't know why they didn't tie that up. But one, one thing I will say is that Robin and I are still friends. <laughs> which is great. Yeah. No, it's just something I've been thinking about since I, I saw it for the first time and have been rewatching it uh, over the years that I love Polly. Like I said, I'm a devotee of the top that scene. And then, you know, Louise and Polly have their kind of falling out. And then you expect by kind of convention of teen movie that they would come back together at the end, but they really don't. Do you think it's on purpose? Do you think that like, where does it leave you? I think it's more about the randomness of this film. No, and I think that that's actually what technically gives this film its special quality is that it's not like other movies, you know, with with the musical numbers, with the sort of break from classic storytelling or a team of screenwriters who would be like, this isn't resolved. It's sort of random in that way, right? And it's easy for someone to sort of criticize it. It's also kind of like, well, it's what makes it special. So, yeah. And now I'm realizing because of what you just said about Joshua Miller, that this question may not be as satisfying as I'd hoped. But I was going to ask what it was like (laughs) to meet and work with Zelda Rubenstein. I never met her. Well, she's another example of someone who is in this film and it does elevate it in a cult sense because this is a woman who not only is, you know, a bona fide cult icon because of her performance in Poltergeist, which is, you know, unforgettable, but she also was one of the most active queer allies, you know, in the 80s. Yeah, she did a number of AIDS campaigns about AIDS safety in the 80s when no one in Hollywood was doing that sort of work. And she would pose in these posters with gay men, you know, in these sort of comedic ways where she would tell these gay guys to wear condoms. Yeah, do you remember the one where she's like dressed up as the mom and she's like, if you go out, don't forget to take your rubbers. It's sort of like a callback to like the rubber boots, but... yep. And it it meant a lot to gay men at the time because she was one of the few recognizable faces who was putting herself out there. So it just is another example of like, okay, well, that in and of itself makes it special because there was this affinity that certain audience members brought to her, you know, being in the film. It's worth noting, but you never got to meet her, it sounds like. I don't think so. I mean, I don't have the best memory, so I may have met her once, but we certainly right. didn't work together. And I don't have like, I don't have a like a memory of having an experience with her. Right. <laughs> How long was the shoot for this? Do you recall? It was a short shoot. I mean, I think it was an under under two months. It had to be under two months. And it might have even been in a month. Well, one of the things that happened the first time I screened the movie was that Joshua Miller's mother came to the screening. Rest in peace. She's since passed away. Did she recently pass away? About five or six years ago, at least. She was in a film called Faster Pussycat Kill Kill, which I had screened earlier that year. And when she attended with Joshua Miller, it was just so fabulous because it was like, oh, my God, wait, there's this other cult icon here from another movie who happens to be this person's mother. Um, But she brought um, a friend of hers who was a woman. And, you know, I was trying to figure it out, but it's a woman who I believe is Alana, who was one of the producers. Oh, yes. Alana Lombros. Yes. So what I could share with you was Alana who was lovely, definitely didn't seem to get the cult reaction of the film. And when she spoke of the film, it was very sincere, you know, like, 
Um, we made this film as a as a love letter to teenagers, and it was very sweet and very sincere. But it did it did kind of evoke to me, oh, this is a movie that was made with a sort of earnestness, right? At least where she was coming from. Um, right. So anyway, I just kind of wanted to share that with you that like it, it's sort of a a little behind the scenes look. I don't know. I mean, when people are making campy films, like there's John Waters that knows what campy. Right. And then there are the ones like Teen Witch that just are accidentally, or Mommy Dearest, you know, right. that accidentally um, are great for a whole other reason, you know, for yes. missing the mark. And I just love that there's value in that too. And again, it just comes back to how the audience is a participant in, in art and in creativity because the way that things are received, that is where the audience and the consumer and the user, it is interactive. And it maybe is like this cosmic channeled thing like that. That's kind of what I feel about the top that scene. I've said it as a joke before that the amulet really worked. And then and for, and <laughs> for some reason, like my, you know, like that moment, you know, the amulet happened and the this magic spell and everybody got put under the spell and it continues on. And I also when you guys were speaking about the top that scene earlier, I was like, oh, well, it's kind of a standalone scene. Maybe that's also why it in and, in and of itself can be this like little three minute thing that goes viral because it was written as a standalone, you know, it does stand alone. But I don't know. I just think that there's this cosmic sort of thing that can happen that is beyond, I guess it's beyond quality or where it's coming from. It just kind of slips in, you know, and I feel like that's what happened with Teen Witch. It kind of slipped in. Yeah. And, and you know. And and then the audience makes it what it is today because it's that participation that really um, kind of sort of elevates and lifts it up. And then obviously what you do with, you know, Peaches with your shows is then you bring it to a whole other level. Then you serve something else. You, you know, like when I saw the different, um, like, you know, the the drag version of all of the musical review, <laughs> you know, the musical review was amazing. I wish that Dan had seen the, um, the drag review of the show because it takes Teen Witch to another level. And it just, again, shows that the participants and the audience really take the whole thing to another level. And I was, what I was going to ask you guys was basically about top that I, I've seen so many different versions of top that online. And I'm so curious what it is about top that, that makes everyone want to try it out. You know? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I think for me, it actually goes back to what we were talking about when we were discussing the idea of camp versus earnestness, right? And I think that this movie doesn't actually work if it was intentionally campy. I think what makes us love the movie is it is earnest. It talks to the idea of what Peaches was referring to about the otherness of Louise and Josh's character and Polly and how they're sort of the outsiders and they're the people we recognize. Like, we love the little brother because he's weird genuinely, not weird in a put-upon way, like because some of us were that weird kid. And I think to see this moment of someone who's sort of shy and maybe didn't have the confidence to approach someone, whether in a romantic interest way or just in a life way, like Polly, who then suddenly like takes that deep breath and like hits it with the force of like a hip hop number. I think that anybody who's ever felt othered wants that. And I think that if the scene had been played even slightly different, I mean, it's campy in its way, but it's not intentionally campy. It's earnest for her character. And her seizing that confidence is exciting. And I think that if you're that audience member, at least speaking for me, 
that's what makes it great. Like I, I want to go rapping at someone on the street. And it's right. nostalgic. Yeah. I mean, the other thing about it is it's so 80s. And even though you know it was shot in the late 80s, early 90s, it's just very nostalgic. And it reminds us of something we all love. And drag captures that spirit. And I think people want, especially now, I mean, you know, maybe the top of that rap should now become a TikTok trend, you know. <laughs> maybe it has. That's true. Right. I do think it has. I've seen a few. I've, people have sent a couple of those things to me. I think even Derek yeah. Huff. Do you know who Derek Huff is? I'm sure you do. Uh, I think he did. I think he did one too. Oh, at, that's at brilliant. Some point. <laughs> I mean, that's what I love about it. Is it just? It, the, yes, it, it'll have like a TikTok life. It just keeps on. You know, it's the gift that keeps on giving. Before we wrap up, I did have to say that you obviously, and I, I said it in your intro, you've built this incredible career being a yoga guru, if you will, and. <laughs> I love knowing that you and I have a connection through Ricky Lake, who's one of my favorite people in the world. Um, and you, you're you close friends with Ricky. I was like, oh, I'm doing the Peaches Christ podcast. And she's like, I love Peaches Christ. <laughs> I love her too. I'm we gonna... were just talking. We were just talking before we recorded this because I was listening to something she did with... Um, did you guys ever see Love on the Spectrum? There's yes. this guy. Yes. So we love Love on the Spectrum. And um, she was on Mr. A on Michael's podcast. I, I saw listening. that she was going <gasps> to be on. I follow Michael. I do too. We we totally loved him. Anyway, it was adorable. And I was oh. anyway, so blah, blah, blah. So go on. Yes. Ricky. Well, and I'm glad that she survived Burning Man. I must say that I was um, <laughs> slightly she nervous. Did survive. She did survive Burning Man. You know, I'm the godmother to her dog, Dolly. Oh. And so I was with Dolly the whole time and getting like the report, you know, like basically right. I'm in the will if anything yeah, happens yeah, yeah. to them that Dolly is my dog. Okay. So, um, yeah. It's yeah. a lot of so responsibility. Anyway. I love her. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, so you moved from acting into yoga and you've been able to build this wonderful yoga career with books and being an instructor. Where can people find you if they want to know more about what Mandy Ingber is doing today? I'm at Instagram at Mandy Ingber, Facebook, Mandy Ingber's Yoga Philosophy, Twitter, Ms. Mandy Ingber. And then um, I have my website, which is MandyIngber.com. And my brand is Yoga Philosophy. And yes, I wrote two books. And one of them was a New York Times bestseller and their mind body makeover books. And really, it's really about um, body positivity and self love and self care and basically how to create positive self talk and healthy habits. After being an actor, that's what became my jam because um yeah, because I need a lot of the positive self-talk, you know? So yeah. that's what happened to me. And I can't tell you how many people when I was uh, teaching, I used to teach spinning as well. I was a very popular spinning instructor, but how many people would come up to me and basically be excited about the teen witch aspect. Um, <laughs> even even when I did, I did Glamour Magazine, you know, like we did like a whole, whatever, we did a... Uh, something to to promote my book and I was in glamour and and they we did like an event and then they were like would you do the top that rap for glamour and I was like sure I remember <laughs> that it was fabulous again it's the one thing that just keeps coming back but yes I am out there and please come visit me on my all of the platforms and on my website well Mandy we really thank you for joining us to continue talking about teen witch and and continue celebrating it with us and taking the time to be part of this and, and just thank you so much. 
Thank you. I really appreciate it. And that was our interview with Mandy Ingber, Polly herself. What better way to celebrate Teen Witch than with one of the people who was there? I loved all of Mandy's recollections. Uh, I also loved how sort of earnest she was about this movie and about how it in many ways began as a job. And then uh, because the cult found him, found it, it redefined her life. I love that she's so well-adjusted and healthy about what it all is. Like she is one of these people who obviously had a really incredible career as a child working in show business. I mean, you and I talked about it the other day, like she was on Cheers, you know, like she played Rio Perlman's daughter. Like she was on all these big, big shows and in movies. And here she is in this strange, odd movie. She's basically said, you know, came out and kind of it wasn't necessarily the most gratifying or rewarding experience because, you know, it didn't have a, a blockbuster reception. But she's gone along, as she says, through her experience at the Castro Theater, seeing the movie with 1,400 obsessed fans led by a, a drag queen cult leader. She's really gotten to understand like what this movie has become for people and what it's meant for people. And like you said to her, the night before you were interviewing her, randomly saw someone wearing a t-shirt with her image on it. Like this is cult in the name. This is what Midnight Mass is all about. You know, a forgotten and misunderstood gym that's been embraced by its audience. And I love that Mandy really gets it and has embraced it as well. Me too. And you know, I just love how Teen Witch in many, many ways continues to persist in pop culture. I love that people are still celebrating it. We talked about how the TikTok generation has discovered top that and it continues to be a trend. You know, this movie that came out over 30 years ago is now something that the new generation is seizing onto in different ways, of course, but that's sort of a testament to the power of its uniqueness and its earnestness that people keep finding it and loving it. Speaking of pop culture impact and shifting gears a little bit, I know that Peaches, you enjoy a little bit of trivia. Madam Serena, as played by Zelda Rubenstein, she has that fabulous house in this movie. Do you know what other major pop culture moment that house appears in? I don't, but like just off the top of my head, the movie that popped into my mind was House. It's not, although that would be a good guess. Madam Serena's house in Teen Witch is also the house in the Thriller music video. <gasps> Really? Yeah. Oh, I love that. Okay. Yeah, I mean, that's an iconic house. My God. And for you looky-loos who come to Los Angeles wanting to take photos in front of famous horror locations, that house is in Echo Park and two doors down from the house from the television series Charmed. So go and get your witchy photos taken. Speaking of witches, before we introduce our next guest, it needs to be said that Midnight Mass, the world of Peaches Christ, the world of this podcast and, and the cult that is listening to it, we realize that witches are everything. And we know that many, many, many of the films that merit Midnight Mass consideration feature witches. We mention a bunch of them, even teen witches. You know, we talk about the craft. We talk about so many of the different films that are witch-led. And I was thinking, Michael, we need to engage with our Patreon and we need to listen to them. And we're going to put up a poll when this episode comes out about which witch movie 
you would like us to do next because there are so many to choose from and witches are going to be a constant staple of this podcast. So we need to know, is it the craft? Is it the witches starring Angelica Houston? The Witches of Eastwick, starring Cher. Which is on our list. It's sure been on is. our list. We have we have the guests all picked out. You know what's going to be hard, Michael, is narrowing down our selections for the poll itself. Because we can't do a poll with 20 selections. We could rattle off 20 good witch movies right now. It's true. And I think the thing is, as with cult movies in general, you and I are going to be talking about witches for the rest of our lives. Speaking of witches, I did want to um, mention one of my favorite teen witch memories because I did this show so much. As you know, if you listen to the podcast, there are many, many films we discussed that I never did a tribute for. And then there's a film like Teen Witch, which I have a long history of live performance with. And I was remembering this moment where it's Martini on stage, and she, for whatever reason, Martini never played Polly, which which seems odd. But Martini was always like one of the just generic backup girls, and kind of she was just Martini in the show. And there was a moment where Robin Lively was at Midnight Mass, and the the performers were all on stage, kind of with her, and it was like her being welcomed to the stage. I think they might've even carried her in. I don't remember, you know, the boys, the hunks, the the sort of rapper characters. And Martini's on stage and Lady Bear somehow with her enormous hip pads turns around and literally bumps and knocks Martini off the fucking stage. And Martini goes down the stairs because at the Bridge Theater, we had like a, a catwalk, but on the side of the catwalk, there were these stairs. Martini goes rolling down the stairs and <laughs> lands on the floor. And I'm standing on the stage next to Robin Lively, looking down where the audience can't see. <laughs> and I can see Martini laying on the floor. <laughs> and I say, oh my God, Martini just fell off the stage. She's lying on the floor and Martini does not miss a beat, gets up and shakes her fist at Robin Lively and goes, teen witch, don't use your powers for bad teen witch. And Robin Lively looks so confused. <laughs> Mar has all of a sudden launched into a, into a comedy bit, yelling at teen witch for making her fall off the stage. And the audience is losing their minds. <laughs> I love that story. Oh my God. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, I also love that uh, Robin was briefly confused. I think that's, that's well, kind of cause she's not, I mean, it witch. makes sense. It makes sense. <laughs> Um, but what a great uh, segue into our next guest. And yes. you're wondering how, but here's yeah. how. We talk with our next guest about, as a teen, if you're having powers, having to reconcile the fact of doing good or doing bad and what that means. And luckily, Louise in the movie chooses good, unlike Louise at the show knocking Martini off the stage. Our next guest is someone who not only loves this movie, but is an expert on teen witches and, and developing powers and crafting tales about adolescent witchcraft. She is a award-winning comic writer. It's Casey Gilly, and she's here to talk to us right now. Welcome back, listeners. 
A celebrated and award-winning comic book creator, our next guest is known for her work across an array of beloved universes, writing for such titles as Star Wars Adventures, My Little Pony Generations, Dungeons & Dragons Ravenloft, and Buffy, The Last Vampire Slayer. Notably, in 2022, she won the prestigious Eisner Award for her short story, Funeral and Foam, which appeared in the acclaimed You Died, an anthology of the afterlife. And, particularly relevant to this week's theme, she's currently at work penning the spooky shenanigans of another teen witch in the form of the chilling adventures of Sabrina. Additionally, this individual has written a number of thematic tarot decks and associated guides centered around the worlds of Lord of the Rings, Dark Crystal, Marvel, and Stranger Things. She's a writer, creator, horror fan, thrift store painting enthusiast, and so much more. It's Casey Gilly. Thank you. I am so embarrassed. Why? Like the nicest introduction anyone has ever given me. You are prolific. I'm very speechless, and I am like bright red, and I want to crawl into my shirt. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's all true. And, uh, you know, when we uh, met recently at San Diego Comic-Con, we immediately started talking about all of these worlds and things that uh, we have in common. You were telling me about your work on Sabrina. We talked about Buffy. And I also discovered that you not only listen to Midnight Mass, but used to attend Peach's Midnight Mass events. And I one did. of the ones that you mentioned while we were talking was the event centered around this movie. So I would like to get into that in a bit. But first, can you tell me about when you first saw Teen Witch, why you love this movie? Let's dig in there. I was a very nerdy young child who grew into a very nerdy adult. And I think I discovered these babies wow. um, and for the people who can't see this i have a collection of teen witch ya that was written in conjunction and a little bit before the movie that i found in a thrift store when i was really young and then i discovered the movie i had very permissive parents who did not monitor any of my media intake and that's something I've dug into in therapy. Um, <laughs> and I've come to the realization that I, I'm grateful about it. But I saw Teen Witch probably in 1990 when I was about 10. And uh, I was already a Zelda Rubenstein fan from having seen Poltergeist and thought anything that she's in, I am in. I am all in. I knew it was cheesy, even though I was little. I knew that it was embarrassing. And I just didn't care because at the time, the cute witch trope was really coming alive and I was fully invested. So the books, the movie, the fan fiction that I later wrote in my teen years. <laughs> um, Great. <laughs> and then the witchcraft work that I would write as an adult. This really was one of one of the most influential things for me. That's lovely. I honestly have been around and affiliated with teen witch fandom for years and didn't know that there was a series of uh, YA books made. Um, I will so send them to you. I have more. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. I, that is amazing. So is it the same characters? It is. Do you want me to read you the back of one? Yes, please. So there are different characters. What they did here was that these ones follow a girl named Sarah Connell, not Louise Miller. Mm. It's unclear if it's one of her manifestations later, reincarnations. It, it could be. But Sarah Connell thinks of herself as a perfectly normal girl until Halloween. She turns 13 and finds out the truth. She's a witch. At first, Sarah is freaked out by the news. Then she begins to wonder about the possibilities. Can she make a love potion to use on Cody Rice? Will school be a snap from now on? Will she get anything she wants? 
Sarah has a lot to learn, and as she discovers when spells start to go wrong, things get hilariously out of control. Who thought it would be so hard to be a teen witch? <laughs> they literally follow the plot of the movie, but then they do some antebellum romanticizing in Gone with the Witch, which is a little oh, Yeah. Um, and Awkward. then there is literally like five or six more books that just retell the movie with like a different boy. <laughs> it is so interesting, this kind of continued theme of a girl coming into her own with magic, but then sort of having to learn that she's not using it correctly or that maybe her power is not being utilized in the proper way. And I'm wondering if this is is both witch trope or YA trope or a little bit of both. I think it's patriarchy trope. Right. Um, yeah, I agree. Yeah. People have always been afraid of women or non-cis men that have any kind of power. And I think that it is completely normal, especially in YA, to explore what it means to have your first access to that kind of power and immediately be told you're doing it wrong, even though there really is no way to be doing it wrong. And not to jump the gun, but to think of another teen witch, I think about the movie The Witch, which is one of the only ones where we see a teen girl who is like, uh, not only do I access this power, I fully get naked with some hot ass goat and levitate into the air to embrace it. So I really just think it's a normal thing that teenage girls, even back in 1988, when this one was first published, have always really needed to hear. There's a lot to dig into as far as the fandom of Teen Witch goes. And um, I feel like we, we've, we're we sort of jumping ahead a little bit, which I want to get to this because I remember once when Martini and I were talking about how much we love Teen Witch. And of course, I love it for, I think, of a lot of the reasons that people love it, which is like, it isn't like other movies. And a lot of the movies you know, we cover on the podcast, we often discuss, they're not like other movies. And that's one of the reasons we love them. And and it's it's why they become cult and they're a, a favorite of niche audiences. But Teen Witch in particular is that sort of baffling mix of tone confusion, genre confusion. And I said to Martini, like, because Martini's actually the person who brought Teen Witch into my life. Like she watched it on TV, was obsessed with it brought it to me, was like, we got to do Teen Witch at Midnight Mass. And for those of you who don't know or don't remember, Martini was my longtime sidekick at Midnight Mass. And Teen Witch was a favorite movie of hers. And I said, Mar, why do you love it? And she goes, I love it because Teen Witch inherits all of these powers. And they are so amazing. I mean, imagine being her and finding out you had all of these powers. And she could work to solve world hunger or create peace in the universe, but she uses her powers to fuck the hot guy. And I remember thinking like, she's being serious. Like Michael <laughs> Martini, AKA Michael, right. this was not some silly Clarification, thing. not Michael May. <laughs> not you. <laughs> yeah. Can you imagine if you were Martini all along? Like, and that was our big <laughs> Halloween season reveal. That's our big that was reveal. a big reveal. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. I love it for all the reasons I just spoke about. You know, I love the musical numbers. I love the silliness of it. I love the Zelda Rubenstein of it. You know, I love top of that. What is it that drew you to this film and spoke to you? Was it sort of the, the depth that Martini experienced? <laughs> or was it the fun of it that I experienced? Or everything? I was an exceptionally late bloomer. I'm talking my 20s late bloomer. And I think that the shallow aspect of a girl gets magic and the first thing she does is figure out brow gel and a perm 
was pretty appealing <laughs> to me. Even though Robin Lively is stunning. Like, can we just acknowledge that this was never a homely person in this role? Right. It was just somebody at the victim of, of really bad styling. But that aspect of like full appearance control, especially at that age, is really difficult to master. When you see villains, especially in this movie, like even though Kiki isn't necessarily a villain, typically even when you see villains in teen movies that are like polished to the degree of like a 35 year old woman. And uh, the thing that I really liked about Teen Witch was that it felt a little bit like this is an acceptable level of teenager. I am younger than this, but I also can recognize that that there's something here that I can connect with. There was definitely the sense of what person doesn't want to get a necklace from their drama teacher and then suddenly have powers. And uh, I think that the the lack of consequences was also pretty appealing. <laughs> as toxic as that is, it's great to see stories where maybe somebody who deserves to have powers doesn't have consequences for having them. But it's interesting because I think in a macro way, there are consequences, not for Louise per se, but sort of the witchcraft in the world of the movie in general. And the way we see that, and it's this many tendrils topic that we can get back to the patriarchy of it all or sort of the complications of the themes of witchcraft as presented here and as at the time, Because your entry into the movie was Zelda Rubenstein. You said that earlier. And I love that she's the reason that you came to this movie. Because I think for a lot of teenagers, she probably was the last reason a lot of people discovered this. They were coming for fellow teenagers. But Zelda Rubenstein is definitely a specific niche kind of character actor who, if you're in the know of cult cinema, you love and we do here. But her character specifically represents something that she had the power, but the power gets taken away at some point. You Mm -hmm. you can run out of the power. And I think that that's so interesting because even in this teen movie where it's like you can claim your life and be unstoppable, there's this sort of adult commentary because it's like, well, use it now because the world's not going to let you keep it. And I think that's really interesting, especially because Madam Serena is presented comically, but maybe is the most serious character in the movie. I think that the idea of older women becoming invisible and powerless is something that it was pretty shocking to acknowledge in an 80s kids movie. It was a pretty serious subject, and I I don't know how it got in there. I actually tried to look into a little bit of the writing history of it, because I know um, Robin Mencken, one of the writers, worked on This is Spinal Tap and High Anxiety and went on to have like a really interesting career post-Teen Witch. I was trying to find anything about their approach to like writing this movie and just kind of couldn't because that was one of the things that stood out to me was like, wait a second, there's like some really great symmetry here of young and full of power and also benevolent uses the power to get her mentor some hot dick by the end of the movie. (laughs) (laughs) But but also that acknowledgement of like, yeah, you have a shelf life, but who knows if the the magic could be used to prevent that? It's an interesting thing to think about the writing of this film because a lot of what I think we love about it is its uniqueness. And, you know, we look at, you know, other movies that in our canon, we can sort of guess were unintentionally favorites for reasons that weren't intentional. So like Showgirls or Valley of the Dolls or Mommy Dearest. Like we we understand they aren't the same as John Waters films where the intention was exactly what you get, which is to make you laugh, make you scream, shock you. With Teen Witch, it's kind of like, I don't know where this movie 
fits into that, you know, universe because, you know, on one hand, how could it not be intentionally campy, right? But then on the other hand, it is dealing with themes and earnestness in a way that makes it confusing. I think that's one of the things I just love about the movie. Now, we talked about this a little bit with our interview with Mandy Ingber, uh, who plays, you know, Polly uh, in the film. And when I first screened it, and I don't know if this is the screening that you were at, Casey, but that screening, the first one I ever did was with Josh Miller. And at that screening, we had his mother come, but she brought her friend who was Alana Lambros, who I brought up to Mandy. And Alana was so confusing to me as far as what they were thinking when they made the movie. I kept trying to get to it, you know? And Alana would say things like, we just thought we were making a nice movie that our friends and family would enjoy and that people would relate to. Like, she was not making it easy, you know? And, and, yeah. and I remember looking at Josh, you know, Josh Miller, who plays Teen Witch's brother in the film. and Richie. Richie, Richie Miller. Richie Miller, who's the star, you know, the cult star of not just Teen Witch, but Near Dark oh. and, you know, River's Edge. And it is transgressive and makes transgressive films to this day. And Josh is a peer and a friend, but someone I grew up watching as a child actor. And Josh is looking at me kind of winking, going like, yeah, this is how I grew up with Teen Witch. Like, see, they didn't really know what they were making. And that's from uh, one of the producers, but the writers, you're right. Like, wouldn't you love to get in their heads? Well, the film was a, a you know, it was an attempt to kind of cash in on the popularity of Teen Wolf. And mm -hmm. that was a retread of 50s movies, right? Like I was a teenage this, I was a teenage that. But Teen Witch somehow, more than any other of these films, stands alone. And I don't know that we figured out exactly why, but I do know that the musical numbers are one of the big baffling, you know, <laughs> things in the film that we all love as super fans of the film. And so I have to ask you, of course, there's top that. What's the first one? Never going to be the same again. Oh, yeah. 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 Uh, there's the, you know, popular one about being the popular girl. There's I Like Boys. You know, what is your favorite musical moment in this film? My favorite is definitely I Like Boys because I feel like witch movies are always going to be a little queer. <laughs> in the 80s, they were like, we need to let you all know. If you're a boy in the audience watching this, you're not gay. And here's how you're going to know. There's going to be some girls in some purple leotards talking about how much they like you. And we're going to have a whole song uh, so that you feel okay seeing it. And we're going to have this whole moment of like, don't worry, don't worry. This independent older woman who does not need a man, absolutely not gay. All of these teenage girls who spend a lot of time staring at each other, totally not queer. They're going to put on some leotards and sing about you and if i could talk to the writer that'd be the question i would ask was this sincere or was this the way that i i read it which was like oh okay we're just giving people permission to watch this who might not normally watch it and not feel weird well it's funny because ever since you pointed out that one of the things louise does for madame serena is help her get dick i'm like well isn't that basically all louise does with her magic throughout the movie i mean it's not all she does but it's like a big sort of thrust of what she does because she gets the the drama teacher ronaldo she goes after a boy herself she has Polly rap so she can get with the rapping boy madame serena ends up with somebody it's sort of like 
That's true. Yeah. yeah. And She's, I guess yeah. in a way it ties a little bit into what you're saying, Peaches, about the nature of this movie. I think that if the producers and the writers were like, we're going to make a nice, earnest film for our families, it's sort of like that's that disnification of the idea that like everybody just needs to end up with someone at the end of the film. But they didn't realize how much otherness they imbued in this movie in the process, thus making it also really flipping weird in the delivery, I guess. And maybe that's where the disconnect comes. Like we recognize the elements of things we see in every teen movie, but then it's delivered in a weird way, like people in leotards singing in the locker room when there's been no indicator this is going to be a musical up until that point. No warning whatsoever. Yeah, so it's wild. And I'm wondering if that is also for you, Casey, because we talked about this a little bit with Mandy as well, kind of like the difficulty of being someone making a movie that constantly shifts tone. And we know that's why it didn't immediately connect with audiences. But do you think for people who are watching, as you say, who are other or queer or on the outside, is that strange unevenness what actually was the draw for folks like us? Maybe. Peaches, when I saw your Midnight Masses of it, I think I've seen multiple. I definitely was at the one that Robin (laughs) was at. That was at the bridge? Because she was at the bridge and then also I brought her to the Castro. I saw her at the Castro. Ah, okay. That one in particular was where I made the connection of like, this movie is gender performance. Mm-hmm. This entire movie is gender performance. And some of it is done by cis people, as far as I know. Some of it could be, I don't know everyone's identity in the movie, but it felt like a very cis forward gender performance. And it hit me of like, oh, this is a perfect drag movie because everybody in here is doing some kind of gender performance that is at the same time deeply unnatural especially the rapping scene, um, <laughs> and also could not have been anything else. So I do think that even if I couldn't identify it, that was part of what really intrigued me because another of my favorite movies as a young person was The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas, which is mm. a very gender performative, intentional musical, different quality level and different intent for sure. But same sort of spirit of... Um, do we, do we really realize what we've unleashed here? Right. I do think that that otherness and like those small elements of sort of gateway horror are very appealing to people who end up growing up to be weirdos. Yeah, that makes sense. I hadn't thought about Teen Witch's sort of gateway horror because it's not scary. We know that. No. But it's definitely genre. Let's get into the witch of it all because we've got a witch expert here today. And... um. <laughs> That better be one of you. It's me. It's me. So, of course, many of us are obsessed with witches. Myself, for sure. But I know for a fact that the queer, transgressive, cult movie audience that we cater to at Midnight Mass, we love witches. Often, as is the case for myself, we are first introduced to the wonderful world of witches, if you're old, uh, through the 1939 classic film, The Wizard of Oz, where Margaret Hamilton is the witch of all witches and basically is unparalleled. Now, beyond that, we get all these different versions of witches And it runs the gamut from Angelica Houston and the Witches uh, to The Craft. You know, that's another teen witch style movie. And in fact, as Michael introduced, you're affiliated with Sabrina, the teenage witch. But I love that you jumped from teen witch to the witch. Yes. (laughs) 
<laughs> which to me are on the, the sort of opposite ends of the spectrum as far as like maybe tone and, and approach go. But totally. are they really that different? And instead of just the whole broad world of witches in general, which is sort of what I started with, let's get into the teen witches of it all. And are you a fan of all these different teen witches from obviously you liked the witch, it sounds like. What do you think about Sabrina? What do you think about the Netflix series? What do you think about the craft? I love all of it. Okay. I am hard pressed to find a witch movie that I don't like. Even if they're bad, even if they're not my thing, that story just never gets old to me. You mentioned Wizard of Oz. I actually love Return to Oz, the far witchier sequel. Yeah. With Mombi and her rotating heads. And again, like this idea of women with power being able to transfigure their appearance and be in total control over something that, that cis and trans women are regularly told you do not have control over. And I think that from like a queer perspective, part of the reason why witch narratives are so powerful feeling is because you are sort of a god that gets to make yourself in your own image. And your power does generate from you or some sort of ancestral line that through time or actions or just sort of opportunity, you find yourself having access to. And that kind of story, no matter if it shows up in Sabrina or the craft or anything, it's something that never loses its hold on me. And it's actually something that I think about in pretty much everything I write is this narrative of of let's talk about how people that are maybe disempowered or people who are marginalized or even just overlooked can have access to something that makes them feel powerful. I'm really interested in sort of the evolution of the teen witch into adult witch and how that power dynamic with relation to the world changes. Because when we look at something like Teen Witch or the beginning of the craft, when they first discover their power, they want to use it in some way for acceptance or to fit into the world of men, air quotes, going back to the patriarchy conversation. And then when they realize that that's artifice, that's construction, and they can claim their power and reconstruct the world in their way because they don't need to be told, that's the end of the witch. That's Willow in Buffy, when you see her becoming a witch, she still wants to be accepted and then she becomes a goddess and who fucking cares, right? Like, <laughs> And I think that it's really interesting because I guess that for something like Teen Witch or Sabrina to that end, it's still a transitional phase for them. And I think that's interesting. And is that part of the appeal of the story, the, the, the finding of the power, or is there more to it to you? I think so. I think as we've been talking, one of the most transgressive things that Teen Witch did was instead of giving Louise a familiar, like Sabrina gets Salem. And so often we see, like even in that which will not be named because that turf deserves nothing, um, (laughs) receiving a familiar as part of this, Louise gets something she doesn't have to care for. She gets a necklace. She does not get a living thing that now she owes, you know, some sort of caretaking to, which is also another very like patriarchal thing. And I think that that having that in a teen story where it's not, okay, you're inheriting power and also you have to care for this like living creature that is part of your power is something pretty unique and special. Again, no idea what the writers were thinking. Would love to know if they intended <laughs> to be that way. But in terms of that transitional phase, that's where you make the most mistakes. So I think it's where the most stories are. Part of what we see in Sabrina the Teenage Witch in general is somebody who has the the freedom to experiment with her powers 
and has a pretty big safety net. And I think that that is like, <laughs> if there are any parents listening to this, I am a parent, I have a six-year-old. And that is something that is so powerful to raise kids with, magical or non, of just this idea of as you are figuring yourself out, as you are coming into whatever sort of power is most appealing to you, or that, that you sort of find first, you should be able to take risks and experiment. Maybe don't turn your brother into a dog, but try things out, make mistakes, get things wrong. And in that, the more you figure out how to fix things, the closer you get to this like very realized version of yourself, which apart from gender, I think is a message that people just need to hear more in their teenage years because everyone just tells you to be yourself. But like, what the fuck is that? Yeah, for sure. Speaking of turning your brother into a dog, and and I know I brought Josh Miller up earlier, but one of the fabulous parts of this movie is Josh's bizarre and wonderful performance. We talked about Zelda, of course, and we love Zelda, but so many of the um, characters surrounding Teen Witch in this film are just fabulous, whether it's her brother Richie or her friend Polly. Can you maybe discuss what it is you like about the other friends and family that exist in Teen Witch's world? Richie is so intense. And Joshua delivered his lines with more sincerity and menace than anybody else in that movie. It's something that I love about all of his performances, actually, is that it seems like for him, intensity is a very easy thing to get into. And you can't take your eyes off of him, even if it's horrible. Like the scene where they're fighting in the kitchen and he's calling her a dog is honestly kind of hard to watch. And then this like terrifying. Bizarre. Yeah. Yeah. Also, where did this come from? Was this in the script? How did this get here? Was this just. Joshua just being a genius and channeling the worst brother in history. Another favorite is the aggressive disciplinarian teacher that for some reason reads Louise's diary out loud. Like, my dude, you don't read something a teenage girl has written. It's going to be nasty. Any (laughs) teenage girl in that class, you pick up anything they've written. mm -mm. I would never look at something a teenage girl wrote unless they asked me to, because I just don't want to get traumatized like that. Yeah. Well, you know who, who I don't think gets shouted out enough in this movie? And it makes sense because it's a supporting role and uh, it's it's mostly stunt casting. But the fact that we do have Dick Sargent from Bewitched playing dad here and being very aware of the movie he's in. I think if anybody knows the movie they're in, it's actually Dick Sargent, which 100%. makes sense. But of course, he's been dealing with witchiness his his whole career. I do want to ask you about Polly, and this is something I brought up with Mandy as well, because maybe the one sticking point for me for all of these years has been uh, the fact that Louise and Polly have a falling out at the end of the movie. And unlike the construction of any other teen film of the time or now, they never reconcile. And what are your thoughts on that? I think it's actually a pretty realistic view that fights don't get resolved that quickly. Relationships don't get fixed that quickly. And I also think that it shows a tremendous amount of respect on Louise's part to not use magic to fix Polly, that this is a relationship she does want to be authentic and to unfold in whatever way it is meant to unfold with Polly having full free will. And I also think it's completely fair that, like, listen, if my best friend was suddenly a witch, I would probably need a cooling off period. I would probably be intensely jealous. I'd be like, well, I, I've, (laughs) worked really hard for this why not me (laughs) and also scary and like what are you going to do with it you could do really anything do I want to be that close to it yes I'm a toxic person I do but uh, I think it makes a lot of sense to write a teenage girl that is not drawn to it and that 
does not feel comfortable around that sort of thing and needs to have her own journey with finding whatever makes her feel powerful in her own way. So we just need to talk to the writer. But that's <laughs> something I would love to know of like how intentional was that or was it just sort of like, this is just what happens. And is the writing of Teen Witch itself something witchy and intuitive that made perfect sense when it when it was never meant to? As a child of the 80s who grew up in the 80s, and I think that's really the formative decade for me, is very sort of synonymous with what we think of as 80s styles. And, you know, the, the clothing, the fashion, the music, the look of the film, it's so 80s. But the film actually was released in 1989. And, you know, a lot of films, if you look at 1989, they really nod more to what was coming in the, the 90s. I mean, even Heathers, which came out in 1988, had much more of a 90s style, you know, and predicted what was going to be in vogue in the 90s. Whereas Teen Witch looks like it could have been made in 1983, you know, fashion-wise, right? Like, it's so 80s, but like really mid to early 80s. I don't know why this has always fascinated me because the movie basically came out, it's almost 1990, you know? So one is I'm like, God, did it take them a long time to make it? Like, was the movie shot earlier and then released late? Or, or was it just sort of like the costume designer and the people stylizing the movie were just kind of the mindset of like, this is still what's cool. All that being said, I love it. I love the fashion. I love the hairstyles. I love, you know, the sunglasses. And of course, I love the top that number. What is your favorite outfit? Because look, I am a drag queen. So when, when, when tackling these movies, and I maybe have the budget sometimes for only one look, it can be quite challenging for me to pick, you know, which look I'm going to do a Peaches costume. So if you could be Teen Witch in any of her looks, which look would you choose? I was going to ask you that question, too. I was going to ask you what your favorite outfit was. Well, I'll, I'll answer. You answer first. This is probably the unpopular opinion, but mine is when Louise tries to give herself the makeover outfit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's so close to my heart. I have done horrible things to myself in the name of experimentation. And just seeing that effort of like, oh, baby, you're so close. <laughs> <laughs> it's really sweet and precious. And I think that that is like the heart of who she is as a character. This is probably going to surprise some listeners because what I end up wearing on stage is the blue shirt that's bundled, um, you know, at the waist with the tutu, you know, over the, the mini skirt. And I think that's probably maybe one of the most iconic looks in the film. For sure. But I love... The weird older woman, blue velvety dress with the amulet, you know, the opening title, sort of like that sexy 80s, like all of a sudden she's 35. My memory of high school and junior high was that a lot of younger girls were dressing in these sort of giant shoulder pads. I think technically that's my favorite look. <laughs> that dress is so my divorce just got finalized and I'm heading to the hotel bar for a drink. That's right, yeah. Like, it is, is such a moment. And um, <laughs> when you were talking about how 80s it is, I had never thought about this before. It looks so 80s, but the music is also all rap. Right. Yeah. You probably would not have put that in until a later 80s movie, but like that's what the teenagers are listening to. So at least that part of it was very like on the nose and of the time, even though the clothes were much earlier in the decade. 
well, it's all rap and like aggressive, like late night Cinemax saxophone, um, which is really fascinating because like there's a lot of like porn sax in this movie that's supposed to be for kids, which actually ties into my favorite outfit of the movie, because this to me is actually the most 80s. Much like Louise, I'm all about Shauna's jacket. I want that. I was a Debbie Gibson enthusiast. So, of course, like I was just like, there it is. And I think she's cool. So she's cool. She's based on Madonna, right? I assume so. Or like Tiffany at the, at the yeah. least, you know. Or both. To be fair, Madonna did kind of lead the way, you know, as far as that goes. And then Tiffany and Debbie Gibson and, you know, maybe Louise is sort of a, a hodgepodge. At the time in the 80s, you either leaned toward, and I always felt like this was not a fair decision to have to make. You leaned toward being more of a Madonna-styled fan or a Cindy Lauper style fan. And I loved them both. And I think Louise, you could argue she's a little bit of both. She's got yeah. a little Cindy in her and a little Madonna. She is a little bit of both. Yeah. I do think like the jacket is just like a very iconic Madonna, like desperately seeking Susan. For sure. For sure. Um, All the buttons and yeah, yeah, totally. I miss those styles. Oh my God. Have you guys seen that on TikTok, there are now Gen Z girls that are doing the full-blown hair-sprayed-up bangs, the frizzy 80s hair, and they're doing it earnestly. They like the look. And I'm like, yes, I love it. I was recently in Target, and I saw a collection of backless clogs, which immediately I felt, I felt the three different times I fractured my ankle, not being athletic, walking in those shoes. And much like the bangs and the frizziness, my immediate thought is, you all just got to have to learn this for yourselves. Yeah. Just jumping back for a second. I thought I had read this somewhere and I looked and it's true. Debbie Gibson was originally supposed to play Louise Miller. Oh, that's oh. right. I, I think I had heard that as well. That's super I, interesting. It was stuck in my head. I was like, is this true? Is this true? I looked. It's 100% true. But it, it sounds like the negotiations fell through before she could be cast. But maybe that explains a lot of the styling to be consistent with Debbie's brand. That actually makes a lot of sense. The other thing I've seen people wearing, like young people wearing, are jelly shoes, which I am surprised. <laughs> and not just jellies, but and Michael's looking at me baffled. Do you know what jellies are? Girl, I know what jellies are. <laughs> well, Come you're on. so young. You're such a child. Casey, you look way too young to remember, you know, the backless clogs and things. I'm very, very judicious with the Botox. I'm 40. <laughs> I'm almost 43. Ah, okay. Well, you, you look a decade younger. Thank you. I have scars on my left foot from wearing a platform jelly sandals to a early 90s summer fair and then melting to the pavement <laughs> my recollection of the whole jelly shoe thing was wasn't it also discovered that they're chemically dangerous for I'm us sure. right like, yeah. Yeah. we also drank horrible things and microplastics like all everything's bad for us one of the things that's hard to explain to the new generation is that brief era at the end of the 80s, early 90s, when they had the diet potato chips that literally on the bag were like, these may cause anal leakage. And we just had those in stores. Was that a Lestra? It was a Lestra. I was a chubby kid. I remember those. Do you know what shocks me more than the 90s trends coming back, though, is the people embracing that early 2000s business casual at the club trend. Oh, my God. The statement necklaces. <laughs> 
maybe what we're learning is we all need a little witchcraft to get our lives back on track. Which, as we're wrapping up, brings me to one of my favorite questions to ask. You talked about seeing this movie in 1990, and you're still talking about it now all these years later. You've uh, watched the movie time and again. You've gone to see Peaches do it live. You're here with us today. How has your relationship with Teen Witch changed over the years, if at all? I don't think it has. I think that I still feel that same, like, what the fuck am I watching? In the loveliest way possible, whenever I see it or interact with it, it is so sincere and so sweet. Everybody showed up and really wanted to make something lovely. And it shows in that movie. I don't think that my relationship with it has changed at all. I do think the older I get, the more I relate to Zelda. But I think that that is like the trajectory we are supposed to follow as human beings. It is one of those movies that's so transportive for me. I'm really excited for when my my kid is ready to watch mo- like more movies. That's definitely one of like the early like precursor to horror movies I intend to show him um, because it is just such a, a time capsule of all of the wonderful, silly things that happened then. And if you tried to explain this movie to like to a medieval peasant, they probably like fall over and then burn you at the stake. But it's just a thing that you can't explain the energy of, the magic of, until you have seen it. And I hope that my relationship with it never changes. I really love that you led with there's love in the making of this film and that you can feel it. And that certainly has been my experience working with different cast members and then meeting the producer and also talking with Josh's mom and just meeting people who are affiliated either in front of the camera or behind the scenes. That's, I think, one of the reasons it's so special. It's a bizarre film, but it was made with love and you can still feel the uniqueness of the film. Well, we have had a blast with you today. Where can listeners find more about you? Do you do social media? Are you out there for people to find? I do social media. It's a weird time to be promoting it because I don't want to send people to the app that everyone has used for social media. I am on X, formerly known as Twitter. My handle is at runbarbara, all one word. I picked that before I knew I was going to be a professional writer. It's a Night of the Living Dead reference. I've never changed it. I love it. I'm also a lot more active on Instagram where my handle is shark fight, but you can find me at Casey Gilly under, under all social media. And then in terms of comics, my, my publishers, social media is the best way to go. So IDW, Boom, Archie Comics, they keep up with everything I'm putting out there. And I just have to say that I kept it under control, but I was fangirling really hard at first peaches. Oh no. (laughs) You have been such a creative inspiration for me. I am so glad that you exist as a human. I can't believe I got to come on your podcast and talk to you. I'm so thrilled that you are you and you're doing this. Oh, well, thank you so much. And like you have been the perfect guest because you're fun. You have good taste, clearly. And uh, <laughs> you're smart. You, you, you really brought a lot to the table. And, you know, I'm really excited to see Teen Witch again after this conversation. You know, like I really think you illuminated me on some stuff. And I, as you know, am someone who has seen this movie a lot. So we can't thank you enough. For, yeah, we can't thank you enough for being a guest. You've been fabulous. Thank you both for having me. It's been wonderful.
that was our interview with the fantastic Casey Gilly. Wow, I'm so glad that she came on to bring some depth to this podcast because I have to tell you, Teen Witch might be one of the fluffier films I celebrate, which I love. I love a silly, fun, delicious movie. And, you know, people call sometimes these sorts of films guilty pleasures. I find no guilt in being pleasured by Teen Witch. (laughs) I am all too happy. But I actually, you know, hadn't thought about some of the more poignant points that Casey brought up about why she, as a young woman, really loves this movie. It was awesome. The exploration of how the film deals with patriarchy, but also deals with how society treats young girls and aging women is a really, really powerful way to look at this movie. And you're right. I think for a lot of people who attach themselves to Teen Witch because of the cult camp of it all, and maybe just were looking at it in the celebratory way, are also going to be really excited to look at it with more depth. And I'm so happy with this conversation because this is what I love about the cult films we celebrate is some of these movies we have been talking about for years, both individually and together, and we're still discovering new ways to talk about them. And that's just really why we do this. Yeah, and one of the uh, things that I think is funny about this particular episode is we didn't really ever feel the need to to sort of uh, discuss why the film, how should I say this? Well, why it's queer or why we as queer people love this movie so much. Because guess what? It's just so blatantly obvious we didn't need to discuss it. I mean, my God, it's just this movie for queer people growing up is just camp, fun, wild personification of identity for us. We just get it. We love it. I'm glad that Casey brought maybe a a, a little more of a interesting perspective as far as, you know, she talks about the patriarchy of it all. That was amazing. I agree. Well, also, I'm all for guests who make us look even classier, you know? (laughs) (laughs) I was like, patriarchy? What? (laughs) One time when we were doing a screening with Robin Lively, um, someone showed up with an exact, I'm not lying, like an exact replication of the amulet. Oh, wow. That's something that I do think that if someone out there wanted to make some money on Etsy or something, start recreating those because I am sure fans would be buying it up. I think that this person might. I wouldn't be surprised if if they are available on Etsy. It was so perfect. And she gifted one to um, Robin. Actually, if you're listening to the podcast and you're the uh, talented woman who made the amulets, let us know and we'll include a link to your Etsy shop. Or if you're someone else who does it. It was really fantastic. And I remember Robin putting it on and wearing it during the show. And it just, you know, it's just one of those fabulous, touching, you know, cool things that happened. Okay, listeners, don't forget, if you are a Patreon subscriber, we're going to look to you to tell us which witch is next. And uh, if you're not a Patreon subscriber and you'd like to become one, you can do so at our Patreon. Subscribe and become part of our coven. That's right. Become part of the coven. And Michael and I, just as we put out Midnight Mass podcasts bi-weekly, we have something called a Midnight Mini Mass, which is a little, usually a, a little a bit of a deeper cut, a little more of an unusual conversation, a movie that might be a little more obscure right. um, or even a topic that we think is funny. Or sometimes it's just updating our listeners on what we've been up to. You know, And I know that this will come as a shock to those regular listeners of the main feed, but somehow we're even more off the cuff in our Mini Mass. <laughs> 
<laughs> I know we are sloppy. Yeah, those are the shows. If you want to hear the real deal, because Heather, our brilliant audio designer, doesn't get her hands on those episodes. They go straight to the Patreon, which means any mishap or fuck up, all my stuttering, it's all in there. I listen back to them and I think that we are still hilarious. Seriously, <laughs> <laughs> flawed. Well, if you too would take your magical powers and use them for the good of fucking the hottest guy you know, well, you too might be one of the children of the popcorn now. <laughs> <laughs> Midnight Mass is created and co-hosted by Peaches Christ and Michael Verratti. The series is produced by Joshua Grinnell, Michael Verratti, and Heather Dunham. The Midnight Mass score and theme music was composed by Andrew J. Sepperly. Midnight Mass is a Peaches Christ production.